So Psalm 23, and I did this with the early service, and we really enjoyed it. We read, that we don't normally do this, we read the chapter together. So I'm going to ask you, if you have your Bible, to read the chapter with me today. I'll kind of lead us, and I'll slow it down so that we can read at a reasonable pace here. But uh, six verses in Psalm 23, and let's, uh, let's actually read this passage of Scripture here together this morning. So Psalm 23, verse number one is where we'll start, and ready, begin. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's probably a pastor of Scripture that you have read before. Many in the room I know have even memorized that portion of Scripture and uh, Phillips called this thought, the first portion of Psalm 23, verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He said that goodness and mercy were God's sheepdogs. The, the shepherd was leading the pack and the sheepdogs were bringing up the rear and following the flock. And goodness and mercy is something that I want to talk to you about this morning. And if I could put that phrase, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, in a nutshell or in a terse phrase, I would phrase it this way. Goodness for my steps and mercy for my stumbles. Psalm 23 and especially verse number 6 here. Uh, one author wrote of verse number 6 in this psalm in particular that to read uh, this verse is to open a box of jewels. Each word sparkles and begs to be examined in the face of our doubts. Goodness, mercy, all the days, dwell in the house of the Lord forever. They sweep in on insecurities like a SWAT team on a terrorist. I love the modern way that the author phrased that, that this verse sweeps in on our securities like a SWAT team does on a terrorist. I want to take this thought, the, the nutshell of goodness for my steps and mercy for my stumbles, but really I want to walk through uh, this phrase, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and just cover it kind of word by word and little piece by piece. And there's not too many pieces because it's not a big phrase. But David <laughs> starts this, this verse, this phrase with this word, surely. And that's a, that's a unique word to start with because it's almost like the New Testament word verily that David is stamping it or sealing it with a form of surety that what he's about to say is something that is sure. And David could have said or could have written maybe goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, or perhaps goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, or I should hope that they do, or I have a hunch that goodness and mercy will be with me. But David does not say it that way. What he says is, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He believed in a sure God who makes sure promises and provides a sure foundation, and isn't that what we need? Because our moods shift, but we need a God who's unchanging. Our circumstances or our lot in life change, but we need a God who does not. 
Our minds change sometimes, and we need a God who does not. We falter, and our devotion sometimes fails, and we still need a God who does not. And even when we are faithless, he is faithful. And David says, he, Jehovah, is a sure God, and you can bank on, I can state with confidence, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And this, for David, is a boast It's an explicit confidence that he is stating in his God, and he's saying, you too can have this confidence, this boasting, this praise of your God, that surely goodness and mercy shall follow you. Now, this is easy to say in good times, that surely this will happen, or my God's there, he's going to see me through. When the health is intact, and when the family is well, and the friends are fond of you, and the finances are in order, it's easy to say this. It's when the opposite happens that really we need to say this, but it becomes tough to say this. David was a man who did not live life on a bed of roses. Sure, he was a king, but he fought tooth and nail for that kingship. He was a man who, uh, no doing of his own, was put on the run and, and literally had to flee for his life at the hand of Saul, but then through some fumbles and sin of his own, had a lot of difficulties and a lot of circumstances and a lot of betrayal and a lot of even physical infirmities due to his sin that, that really haunted him. But despite all of that, not just good times, but the bad times that David had in his life, he can state with confidence that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Can we, can we relate with him there? When things aren't going well, when the body begins to break down, when you watch your life partner, your spouse, wither before you and die, when, you're, when your job folds up and the money's no longer there to pay the bills, when the kids can't make the grades or they're running with a crowd that you know is going to be detrimental to them, when you see the dreams that you've weaved begin to become nightmares, in those moments, can you say, surely, Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Not just when it's a bed of roses, but even when life has been turned upside down, there is a confidence here that David is stating explicitly that I can bank on this, I can anchor to this, that goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life. Surely is how he starts this. And then he uses this word, goodness. It's the Hebrew word tov, and it's used over 500 times in the, in the Old Testament. And the vast majority of those just mean good or goodness. And I want to give you a picture into what David is saying here. When he's saying goodness, what does he mean? I want to, I want to take you to a passage of Scripture where David kind of elaborates on this. And then I also want to show you a passage of Scripture where Paul elaborates on the goodness of God. And what we'll find is they really talk about the goodness of God in two different veins. David looks at it more as this external blessing that my circumstances are okay and God's blessing me. Paul looks at it more of a spiritual and an internal. Both are valid, but I want you to see them. So go to uh, 2 Samuel 7. Turn back towards the front of your Bible. I know that it takes some time to turn and uh, it it breaks up a sermon when we turn to places, but I like for you to see the the black ink on white paper. Uh, I like for you to get in the habit of turning places. So 2 Samuel chapter number 7. I want to show you how David elaborates on the goodness of God. And to give you a little bit of context here for this chapter, the Lord has just come to David and he's given him some great news. He's told David, I'm going to establish your throne forever. 
I'm going to establish your son on the throne, and I will chastise him at times, but I will not take my mercy from him as I did from Saul. He tells David that uh, your son's going to be able to build a house for me. He gives David great news on his future and his heritage and his son, and David replies with, Lord, what can I say? This is, this is little for you to do, but this is big to me. Lord, I praise you and I thank you for what you're doing. And he says, God, you're good and there's no one like you. And he begins to praise the Lord and he ends this praise in the end of the chapter, chapter number 7, verses number 28 and 29. And this is what David says. He says, now, O Lord God, thou art that God and thy words be true. Thou hast promised this goodness. That's the word there in Psalm 23, Tov. Thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Therefore now... Let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord, hast spoken it, and with thy blessing let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. What David is saying is, Lord, I'm banking on, I'm going to be gone. I'm not even going to be here, but I'm banking on this fact. You told me you were going to be good. You told me you were going to give this to my house. You told me you were going to establish my son. Lord, I praise you for that. I thank you for that. I'm banking on your word said that, so I'm anchoring myself to it. And I bless you because you're blessing me and you are giving me goodness. I want to show you on, uh, on the screen here, Romans 2, verse 4. This is how Paul elaborates on the goodness of God. Different word because Paul writes in Greek, not Hebrew. But this is what Paul says. Paul says this in Romans 2 in sort of a rhetorical question. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? When we talk about goodness for my steps, that goodness is leading me, goodness, the goodness of God led Paul, led us where? To a new job, to the right spouse, to the right house. It, that can be contained in the goodness of God. David looks at the goodness a little more circumstantially, but Paul looks at the goodness of God and he says, the goodness is, Lord, you led me to repentance that the real goodness that you've bestowed upon me, the riches of your goodness, is just the simple fact that you have, you've saved me, you have brought me to a point of repentance, you have done for me spiritually what I could not do for myself. What Aaron and Caleb just saying about, that your death, your burial, your resurrection, that one day you're coming to, to receive me again, that you would give me that goodness, that you would lead me to repentance, that's what Paul praises the Lord for. When we say the goodness of God, this is what we're talking about, both in a circumstantial aspect, but probably primarily in a spiritual aspect, in the eternal, that God's goodness is there. And David says, surely goodness, God, your goodness is there and mercy. I heard years ago this, and it helped me to delineate between mercy and grace. Mercy is I don't get what I do deserve. Grace is, I get what I don't deserve. So mercy is, I don't get what I do deserve. Lord, I know I'm wrong. I know I've sinned. I know that I am oftentimes a mess. And I deserve punishment. I deserve chastisement. I deserve hell even. And Lord, you don't give that to me. It's by your mercy that I'm not consumed. It's by your mercy that I get that. Now, grace is, Lord, you're giving me things that I don't deserve. 
It's not just you don't give me the punishment and I, I'm no longer condemned, but it's I have eternal life, I have heaven, I have your help and your grace for every day that you're, I don't deserve that, but you're giving it to me. And David says it's goodness and mercy. And this word is the Hebrew word hesed, which is derived from hesed, which literally means to bow or to bend low. That God is bending low to give to us this mercy. That he's bowing down to uh, not kneel the knee before us, but to give down to us something that we do not deserve. I want you to, uh, we're going to do a, a little bit of turning here under this, under this mercy because I want you to see what it means. And uh, I want you to turn to a couple passages of scripture. One is Psalm 94. So if you uh, can make your way over there. This morning we're going to do uh, sword drills basically. So how many of you all grew up in a kind of Baptist subculture where you were in a junior church at like six and seven years old and you did sword drills? I say that term and you know, okay, a chunk of the room, others of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's the strangest thing I've ever heard in my life. So I won't even explain the game sword drills to you. So you'll just have to ask somebody what it means and uh, then you can play it with your kids at home if you want. But we're going to turn to a few different passages of scripture. So swords up. Um, just kidding. You all don't know what I'm talking about. Psalm 94. This is what we talk about mercy for my stumbles. Here the psalmist writes and he says this in verses 17 and 18. Psalm 94, unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. When I said, my foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. That, Lord, I was, I was gone. I was slipping. I was falling. I, I didn't know what I was going to do if it wasn't for you, but your mercy it, it was there for my steps, it, or for my stumbles. It held me up. It picked me up. It's there for me that your mercy. Turn uh, a little bit further towards the back of Psalms to Psalm 136. This is a famous psalm on the mercy of God, and it's because it's mentioned over and over and over. For 26 verses straight, David just nails this thought on the mercy of God. And I won't read the entire psalm for sake of time this morning, but I want you to see kind of the cadence of it, and you can maybe study it on your own time this week. Psalm 136, here is the psalm. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, his goodness, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. To him who alone doth great wonders, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that stretched out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endureth forever. And on and on for 26 verses, over and over and over again. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. This is an important truth for us to see. That the goodness that we have, the mercy that we have, is not because of us. It's not because of what we do. It's not because of our human efforts. It's because he is good. It's because he is merciful. That the reason David can say, surely, goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life, is because he understands God is a good God. God is a merciful God. And because that's his nature, because that's his character, because that's his godness, that's who he is, then it's going to be given to me. I'm going to have goodness and mercy at the hand of the Lord because that's who he is. If there's one person in the Bible that had a firm grasp on the goodness and mercy of God, I would argue that it's potentially Jonah. Jonah is a man, we know, I say we know, many of you know the story of Jonah. 
that Jonah is told, go to Nineveh and preach to them, and they may repent. And what does Jonah do? He runs from that call, and he is on a boat, and then he's in the water, and then he's swallowed by a fish, and then he ends up back in Nineveh, and he preaches them. Many of us know the story. Oftentimes, we tell it in a way that to our children that, you know, you better obey God or he's going to swallow you with the fish, which is really not the point of the story. The point of the story is that there's a good, merciful God who wants to reach out to some really terrible people, and he wants to offer them a lifeline, and he wants to show them mercy. So understand the context of Jonah, and this is important for the mercy of God. When God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh, where's Nineveh? Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. Who's Assyria? Assyria, are the, they're the bad people. They're the people that are warring with the northern kingdom of Israel. They're the people that are going to take the, the Jewish people captive, that they're going to torture them, that this, this is not, this would be like God telling me, I want you to go to uh, Tehran and just evangelize the whole city, the capital city of Iran. That would be a tall order. That would be a city that from the outside looking in, I would think they're going to be really resistant to, uh, to the gospel message, and this isn't going to go well for me, right? Jonah is told to go there, and Jonah runs from God, not because he's scared for his life. Here's why Jonah runs from God. He knows God is good, God is gracious, God is merciful, and he's scared that he'll give it to Nineveh. He does not want Nineveh to have the mercy. He doesn't want them to be introduced to Jehovah God. He doesn't want them because he knows, God, you're merciful, and you're going to give it to them, and I don't want them to have it because I don't like those people. To, I'll, I'll prove it to you. Jonah goes. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches, and what do they do? They repent, and God shows mercy. And what does Jonah do? He pouts, and he has it out with God. I'm going to read you Jonah 4, verses 1 and 2. Nineveh's just repented. Here's what Jonah says to God. Here's why he's pouting. Here's why he's more than pouting. He's angry. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. What displeased him? That the whole city just turned to God. It displeased him. He's very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? God, didn't I say this was going to happen when I was back home? I didn't want to come here. Here's what I said. Therefore, I fled before unto Tarshish. Here's why I ran, God. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. Now, Jonah's a piece of work. I'll admit, he is a piece of work. But he says, God, this is why I ran. I knew this was going to happen. I'm going to come here. I'm going to tell these people judgment's coming if you don't repent. And they're going to repent. And you're going to be merciful to them. And you're going to be gracious to them. And you're not going to be angry with them any longer. And I didn't want that. I knew you were merciful. Now, should we be Jonah-esque and not want the mercy of God to be shed abroad? No, absolutely not. But should we be Jonah-esque in the fact that we can bank on and we know for sure, deep down inside, that my God is good and he's gracious and he's merciful and he's slow to anger and loving kindness, Jonah, I at least give him props there because he knew that. He knew 100% this is who my God is. Do we know the same? Can we say, as David did, 
I know, surely, I can bank on goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life. Not because of me, but because of you. Because I know that you're good, because I know that you're gracious. I'll have you turn one more passage of Scripture. Go towards the back of your Bible to Titus chapter 3. We looked at how Paul described the goodness of God, and Paul describes the mercy of God in a similar vein, that he describes it in a spiritual way, in an eternal way. And Paul says in Titus 3, as he writes to Titus, his protege, so to speak, and he says this in verse number 3 of Titus 3, for we ourselves, we also were sometimes foolish. We were disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy. We're hateful, hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Paul says, I get who I am, and I get who we are, and I get the life I've lived, and I get all the water under the bridge, but I also get that God showed up, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, showed up, and by his mercy, he saved us. He saved me, not because I deserved it, not by works of righteousness, which I had done. I didn't earn it. I couldn't earn it if I tried, but he came, and he showed mercy to me, and he gave it to me. And Paul extols both the goodness and the mercy of God for his salvation, that he leads me to repentance, that he has saved me from my sin, that he's done this for me, and would to God that we would be able to do the same, that we would be able to relate with David and say, goodness and mercy, they're going to follow me all the days of my life. God, you've given it to me. Now, I want to stop for just a moment and apply this to real life because it's very possible that you're sitting here saying, I understand, I understand the spiritual side of this. I've been saved. I thank God for that. And truth be told, we probably don't think about that enough. And we probably don't thank him enough for that. But I, I get that. But if I'm honest, I don't feel the goodness of mercy just hard after me, following me all the days of my life. If I'm honest, I go through days and I, I question God's goodness. I look at what he's allowed I look at my circumstances. I look at the trouble that I'm going through. And you don't, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know the, the troubles I'm facing. You don't know the storm I'm in. How can, I, how can I scream that goodness and mercy are with me all the days of my life? I would encourage you this morning to back up and get a little bit of perspective on your life. Perspective A from the spiritual sense, if you had nothing and your life was a train wreck, but you had Jesus Christ in his salvation, that would be enough, to be clear. But beyond that, think about who you are and where you are this morning. Okay, just, just the nature of you being in the 21st century, sitting here in this room this morning. What does that mean for you? I understand there, there's a, a trouble and a difficulty and a tough time, but you know what that means? It means, first of all, that you're still alive, okay? You were able to get here. So that's good. You're still kicking, and you're able to sit here this morning. You have health intact enough to at least sit here and to listen to what I'm saying. It also means that you're here today. You're in the 21st century. What, why weren't you born in the 1300s? 
Why, why is it that you weren't born when the bubonic plague is spreading around and a quarter of the earth's population is dying? What did you do to get to be born? Most of you are probably born in the 20th century, actually. You're living in the 21st right now, I know. But what did you do? To, nothing. It's completely the goodness of God. You had, you had no choice over that. What most of the room, not all, but most of the room, you were born American citizens. What did you do to, why are you born in this country and you're an American citizen rather than being in Nicaragua? We're going to go to Nicaragua here in a few months and we will go to the city dump where people live. And they, I highly doubt anyone in this room really, really had to scrape and scrounge for some food in the last 24 hours. You probably managed that one all right. You probably got here with your transportation okay. Best I can tell, we all got clothes on this morning. You probably all got a roof over your head. Why is it that you have that and you're not born to a family living inside of the city dump in Nicaragua? Let's, let's back up for a minute and understand how good we have it. We have it better than 99% of Earth's population has ever known it. But we want to we wanna wrestle and get miffed over that 1% of what we don't have. Now, I'm not, I'm not minimizing your, your hurt this morning. I know there are people in this room, and you're going through deep hurt. Through, through relationships, through financial upheaval, you're going through some pain, and I'm not, I'm not minimizing that, but I am saying this. We should have some perspective. We should be able to look at the mercy and the goodness of God and what he's done for us in salvation, and even what he's done for us on just a, on just a temporal level what he has given to us, how can we not back up and say goodness and mercy are here? That God's goodness and mercy have been given to me over and over and over again. But sometimes we get so zoomed in and so focused on the, these three pixels of the picture that we can't get some perspective and see the picture as a whole. And understand that what David is saying is true, what Paul said is true, that God's goodness and his mercy are given to us through his hand, because he is good, because he is merciful. But David continues this out, and he says, Surely I can bank on goodness and mercy shall follow me. Now, this is a word that literally means to pursue or to chase down. And I think it's a surprising way to, to describe a God who's steadfast. That there is a God who's unchanging, immutable, but at the same time, He's not indifferent and detached. He is a God who, David's describing a mobile, active God who his goodness and mercy are pursuing us or tracking us down. He says, they shall follow me all the days of my life. Spurgeon described goodness and mercy this way. He said, they're God's footmen. Footmen in his day were these men that rode on the back of the carriage, but at times went before to prepare the way and make the way easier. That when the coach stopped and the dignitary was getting out, the footmen would jump off and they'd open the doors and they'd go into the room and make sure it was prepared or make sure that the meal was lined out, those sort of things. And, and what David is saying here and what Spurgeon tried to describe is these are goodness and mercy are here preparing the way, providing for my steps, picking me up in my stumbles, but they are, they're after me. It's something that is God is giving to me through his hand, and he's pursuing me. This is, if, if I could give you a story or recommend a reading to you, I would recommend the book of Hosea. Hosea depicts a, a big portion of who God is, his character, and that God is a God who pursues and is actively after us. 
The story of Hosea, if you're unfamiliar with it, is a man, and Hosea is told by God to go marry a lady named Gomer, and Gomer is a prostitute. And God says, go marry her. Now, obviously, that's a strange request. But Hosea obeys and does, and he says, I want to kind of show my love toward Israel in this. So he does. And he takes her home, and they have a couple children. And then Gomer leaves and goes back to her old life. And God comes to Hosea and says, I want you to go find her again and get her again. And the picture is, it's pretty explicit in the Bible, but the Bible gives this picture that Hosea finds Gomer literally on the trading block. And he buys her back unto himself. He buys back his wife and takes her home. And God says, Hosea, I want you to do this. And here's the reason why. In chapter 2 of Hosea, it says, I'm doing this so that I can show and display the love that I have towards Israel. I want them to know and to be able to see in a picture, in a man, in, in his bride, I want them to see that I'm a God who's pursuing, who is active, that when you leave me, I'm after you, I want you back, I will redeem you, I will take you back, I will show you mercy again. I want you to show them that I'm hard after them, that I'm active and I'm mobile and I'm, I'm, I'm in their lives. And David is saying, goodness and mercy shall follow me, that God is actively pursuing with me with these all the days of my life. He ends this thought with these words, all the days of my life. And what a huge statement. This is not, they'll be there when I get to the end of my life. This is not, they're going to be with me, kind of. This is a Goodness and mercy shall follow me each and every day of my life. That tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and April 16th and May 20th and 2018, that every single day, goodness and mercy are following me. And God is there and he is after me. I want you to think of the days ahead for you and your life and what do you, what do you see? Do you see days of loneliness? You see days in a dead-end job. You see days at home with only toddlers and infants by your side. What's that look like? No matter what picture your mind paints of the days ahead and what the future holds for you, I can guarantee you this. You have a God who's there with goodness and mercy every day. Day after day after day, following after you. It, does, it doesn't matter what it, hurt, what it holds circumstantially. He's there to hold your hand, to see you through, to guide you, to shepherd you, to walk with you in those times of need and those times of triumph. That in, in all of our days, bright days, dark days, fasting, feasting, dreary winter, sunshine, summer, it doesn't matter. God is there pursuing us with goodness and mercy. So this morning, my encouragement to you would be, first and foremost, understand who God is. He is a good, merciful God. Jonah at least got that right. That he is a good, merciful, gracious God to you, to you, to your kids, to your family. And what that means is, we started with, at the beginning of the sermon, saying this verse attacks our insecurities like a SWAT team attacks a terrorist. What this means for us is we can release our doubts. 
we can release our securities. We can set them down and walk away from them. If it's true that God is good and God is merciful and that he is pursuing us all the days of our life with that, if that's true, and it is, what that means is I'm no longer a candidate for insecurity. I'm no longer a candidate for fear and timidity that I can, as a sheep, rest in my shepherd that he's going to be there with goodness and mercy. What it means is I can trust God. Even when I choose the trash of sin over his mercy, even in those moments, he still pursues me. He's still there. He's an active, mobile God in my life, and I can, I can rest in that. And I can set down my insecurities by knowing this, that there's goodness for my steps and mercy for my stumbles. That when David says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, he's not just saying, this is for me. No, 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 you can't have it. What he's saying is, this is at the hand of God. It's because of who God is. And we enjoy it as well. That we can say with him, surely goodness, mercy shall follow me all the days of my life.